Filled with prophetic light, Isaiah recorded the most profound doctrine in history. He saw Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, despised and rejected, acquainted with grief, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. As we are healed with His stripes, may it stir within us a consuming fire of faith and conviction, leading us to be unflinching in our resolve to make our hearts, homes, and chapels a welcome refuge for all. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit can teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. The atonement to me is um, really important because uh, I need to remember that I'm not perfect and that continual repentance is part of the process. I've been through my own set of trials, but what I've learned from it is how to um, grow with the Savior, not without the Savior. And it's shaped into shaped me into who I am today. He's there to make my actions enough and he's there to make sure that um, through my efforts and his divine love for me, I can make it back to my Heavenly Father. Welcome everyone, thank you for being here today. Today we're gonna to continue our discussion in the book of Isaiah, focusing on chapters 50 through 57. And the two topics we're gonna to discuss today are first, Jesus Christ took upon himself my sins and sorrows, and the second topic is gathering, enlarging the place of our tents. And to help us with our discussion today, we wanna to welcome back one of our scholars, Dr. Melissa Inouye. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks, I'm so happy to be here. Melissa is a historian with the Church History Department, and our special guest today is Brother Brad Wilcox. Brad, so good to have you here today. It's good to be with you, Ben, and good to be with you, Melissa. Brother Wilcox is a professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University and is currently serving as the second counselor in the Young Men General Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So as we jump into our first topic, uh, Jesus Christ took upon himself my sins and sorrows. Can we get a little bit of context specifically with this portion of the book of Isaiah? Because this is not our first time here but there are some themes that Isaiah likes to use. What can we look forward to with this part of Isaiah? Well, at this time, in this part of Isaiah, we're talking, um, Isaiah's addressing the situation of the Jews who are in captivity and exile in Babylon. They're far from home. They're, you could say like they're in enemy territory. Um, and this section in Isaiah is a, a kind of word of comfort, redemption, restoration. And it speaks frequently of, um, of a servant who will come and, and help to redeem people. You know, Christians all over the world have read about Isaiah. There's centuries of scholarship on the book of Isaiah with a, a myriad of different theories and ideas and, and framings for the text. We can see, for example, like how in the New Testament, um, Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, would frequently refer to the ways in which the prophets had prophesied of Jesus. So for example, in Matthew chapter 11, he talks about John the Baptist, um, for it is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before my face. Or for example, in Matthew chapter 12, 
it says in verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah the prophet, saying, behold my servant whom I have chosen. So this was the author of the Gospel of Matthew speaking to the Jews. Um, they had all, they all knew the prophet Isaiah, and, and Matthew was saying, this um, Jesus is a fulfillment of these prophecies, and we follow that same line of understanding. Yeah, beautifully said. What can we look forward to? Why uh, is chapter three so important for us as members of the church and Christians in general to understand? Look at verses four and five. In verse five, it says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. So he's suffering for sins, but look at verse four. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's a very different view of the atonement. Most people see the atonement as just a suffering for sins and transgressions. But we understand because of Isaiah and because of Book of Mormon prophets that he was also carrying our sorrows, our griefs, our sicknesses. Now, other than just being nice, why would he do that? I mean, you can see why he would take sins upon himself because that's going to keep us from God. But our sorrows aren't sins. Our sicknesses aren't sins. The unfairness we deal with, that's not a sin. So why would he care about that? And I think the answer that I've considered is that they still distance us from God. Wow. So sin distances us from God, but if we let them, our sorrows, our struggles can also distance us from God. Sometimes people will say, I'm so grateful to know that Jesus understands where I'm coming from, that, I'm, that there's somebody out there who understands exactly how I feel. But we also have to go a step beyond that and realize that he's not just understanding us, it's not just about being empathetic, it's also about being able to help us. Because if he knows what we've gone through, if he knows what we're struggling with, then he knows exactly how to help us. So it's not just, oh, you know what? I just feel for you. Uh-uh. It's because I feel for you that I know exactly what you need and I know exactly how to help you. And if you'll put your hand in mine, we are gonna, we're gonna do this thing. We're gonna make it happen. President Merrill Bateman, who was the president of Brigham Young University and also a member of the first Quorum of 70, spoke in general conference. And Elder Bateman said something that created such an image for me. It has just stuck with me for such a long time. He said, for many years I thought of the Savior's experience in the garden and on the cross as places where a large mass of sin was heaped upon him. He says, through the words of Alma, Abinadi, these are Book of Mormon prophets, and Isaiah, the, and other prophets, however, my view has changed. Instead of an impersonal mass of sin, there was a long line of people as Jesus felt our infirmities. Well, how can that be? Well, we've got to remember that Christ wasn't bound by clocks and calendars. He wasn't bound by time. And so he did have this long line of people and one by one he did this in a very personal and individual way and I think the point isn't to argue about well how was there time for that you know 
how much time did that take? I think the point we have to remember and be grateful for is that he took the time. I'd love to hear from the audience, just off of what Brother Wilcox is talking about. When have you felt that the Savior had taken upon himself your personal sins and your personal sorrows? Sarah. Um, just the first thing that came to my mind was while serving my mission. And something that came up a lot is just when I was going through the struggles that I was going through, I just remembered it just day by day going through those struggles of trying to share the gospel, being rejected time and time again. It made me feel this closeness to Christ because I felt like in a way I could understand to a tiny extent what it feels like to be rejected or even just to be criticized or pushed away for preaching and sharing the truth, so. And, and Sarah, how have you been able to, to transfer those feelings you had as a missionary to life after your mission? I guess that same fear to be rejected comes up whenever you try to share the gospel. But I'm reminded that this, it does connect me to Christ and that he's a man of sorrows and who am I to not have to go through any sorrows or any fear in order to become more like him. Thank you so much. I think it's very fitting to this discussion because it shows you what is on our minds. And we had a, a question coming from a viewer that I think can really help us uh, as we try to figure out how to really take chapter 53 and the doctrine of the atonement into our lives. Hi, I'm Jacqueline and I'm from Louisiana. I have a question. As I read in Isaiah about the mercy of God towards Israel, I think about the times in my life where he has shown and given me that same mercy without me even realizing it. But sometimes I wonder if I truly have the faith to rest in God's mercy. How do I freely receive the redemptive power of God in my life on a daily basis? I'd like to thank the viewer for that super thoughtful question because um, you made me think about how you know, when so often when I think about, you know, suffering and, and how Christ suffered for us, not just for our sins, but also for our sorrows um, and, and our weakness, as it says in Alma chapter seven, I, I'm realizing that I've had this idea of, you know, there are these times when Christ kind of steps in and is with us in our times of suffering. But I've always thought of those times as kind of like big times, like times that you tell stories about. Um, but just thinking about last night on my little exchange um, with the person that I love, which didn't go as well as maybe it should have um, and felt sad for me, I realized that, you know, even in that time, um, Christ could be with me. And it reminds me of something that Chieko Okazaki said. All of us face different family circumstances and home situations. All of us need strength in dealing with them. This strength comes from faith in the Savior's love and in the power of His atonement. If we trustingly put our hand in the Savior's, we can claim the promise of the sacramental prayer to always have His Spirit with us. All problems are manageable with that strength, and all other problems are secondary in urgency to maintaining a strong spiritual life. So that makes me think that in, my, um, in that moment, you know, I, I could have thought um, the Savior's with me in this moment, and Christ's love, um, which is so much more than, than mine, is available to me in this moment. And um, Moroni says in chapter seven, you know, if we ask for that love, we'll receive it. Um, but like, um, but we have to ask for it. When have you felt that one-on-one -on -one connection? When has that become meaningful to you? Andalyn. 
Yeah, so just thinking about that one-on-one connection, um, the time that I felt that was one summer night, I was laying on the grass alone, and I was looking up at the dark sky and seeing all those stars, and, you know, I thought to myself, why am I important, you know? Like, how can I make a difference? I had this overwhelming feeling come over me. I felt this love, and I felt Christ just tell me, you know, you are important and you have a big part in this world. And even though you are one spirit, you have the ability to change the world, even if it's in your own family, in your own group of friends, in your ward. And I felt that overwhelming feeling and I just sobbed. And since that moment, have there been other moments where you have felt a similar feeling? Um... I was doing some scripture studies um, one night and, um, you know, I wasn't really having a hard time. Like I was doing great and I was happy and, you know, I, I knew Heavenly Father and Christ loves me. And, but I read this scripture, I don't remember it, but I felt that feeling again. And now every day, I just, I want that feeling every day. And so I I surround myself with people and good things so I can feel that feeling as much as possible. You know, having teenagers myself and, you know, as, as great it is, as it is to hear from them, it breaks my heart to think that, that at such a young age, they go through really, really hard things. Man, but isn't it impressive to see that they are learning about the Savior, about the atonement? Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been so uplifting as we've talked about this first topic, which is Jesus Christ took upon himself my sins and sorrows. I make people feel welcome at church by making sure they know my name and I know their name and making sure that they don't get lost around church and that they have a warm welcome and I introduce them to other people. Making others feel welcome is is something that I take personally because I have been welcomed by other people. So it's it's by example from other people that they've experienced and expressed to me in my experience of being fellowship into church. I love it when other people are excited to see me and maybe come up and give me a hug. It makes me feel like I am so wanted and included and belong and I want to be that person to reach out to others and make them feel that way because I do care about them. The second topic we're going to discuss today is gathering, enlarging the place of our tents. And Melissa, in Isaiah, we see this theme a lot, this theme of the gathering. Can you tell us why? Well, in this section of Isaiah that we're studying, the latter half of Isaiah, it's speaking to the children of Israel who are in a kind of state of exile in Babylon and talking about a time when they'll be able to come back from exile in Babylon, returning to their homeland. Um, so you can just imagine how it, it was, it's kind of like actually how um, some Latter-day Saints in the early days talked about going back to Jackson County, um, Missouri. Um, they've been kicked out of one place, which was a Zion to them, and they're hoping to go back. Um, or, or anyone who's had, had to leave their homeland, um, how we long to return. And the really cool thing about it is, it's not just about restoring the Jews um, to this um, covenant and also to the land where they were, but also about the other people who kind of come in. It involves um, people who have come and converted to the worship of God. 
from their other gods. So God is saying, let this covenant be expanded, not just to the people who were originally driven out, who are come back, but in a broader sense, let it be expanded. I think that's an important point because sometimes when we talk about the gathering, we often say the gathering of Israel as if that's the end, but it's not. We gather Israel as a means to the end, which is then to gather all of God's children back to him. In Isaiah 54, in the very first verse, it talks about how there are more children of the desolate wife than there are children of the married wife. Now, the children of the desolate wife would be either Gentiles, outsiders, or people who are of Israel who don't remember they are of Israel. Okay. And then the children of the married wife are those who are in the covenant. So he's reaching out to those who are of Israel so that through them he can gather all of his children. So he's not trying to create this exclusive club where only certain people can be a part of exactly. it. Exactly. It's not you are chosen because you're so special or better than anybody else. It's you are chosen to serve. You're okay. chosen to be my servant. You're chosen to help me gather all my children who are special to me. The next verse uh, that you read provides us with the second topic. Um, and it says, enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. This is great imagery. Uh, Melissa, do you mind kind of explaining uh, what Isaiah is trying to describe here? Well, in keeping with this theme of restoration, the children of Israel were driven out of their place of dwelling and the kind of space for them shrunk, right? They were living in these little tiny pockets in exile in Babylon. And so here we have this image of, you know, the place where you, that you will have to dwell will become larger. The, the footprint will be larger. Um, the roof over the head will be bigger. It will encompass more area. Then it says, spare not, lengthen the cord, strengthen thy stake. So if anyone's ever set up a tent, knows there are these guy lines or, or cords that kind of keep the walls of the tent in place and you secure them to the ground with stakes. And the great thing about tents is you can move them anywhere you want. Um, you just have to have cords and stakes. And that's the great thing about this kind of wider idea of restoration and this wider idea of gathering Israel. So we believe in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that we're participating in this project of God to gather a covenant people from all around the world. And that's why we call the kind of congregations of the larger groups of our, of our congregation stakes, referring to these scriptures. But this is the charge to um, enlarge the tent and to lengthen the cords. And so that's the work that we're engaged in today. In the Doctrine and Covenants, it says that much of the gathering will commence in the millennium. And so what we're trying to do right now is just get ready for that. Your image of the tent, we have to have the stakes down first before we lift that center pole of the tent. You don't lift the center pole first and have the tent all around you and then try to pull the stakes out because then it would pull it over. Okay. So we have to have the stakes put out and then we can lift that pole and then we can invite all of God's children on both sides of the veil into the gospel tent. And President Nelson has said that that work is the most important thing that we can be involved in today. What are you doing to assist in the work of the gathering? 
Kirsten. I feel like in my own home, every time I teach my children to live gospel principles or in my calling when I help others to learn about the gospel, slowly one by one, I am doing my own little part to help gather Israel. And, and Kirsten, uh, you have your two sons, two of your sons with you. What are you doing to help them in their role as youth and participating in the gathering? I definitely encourage them to attend their priesthood quorum activities, which is one step to help all of their peers and support their friends, help them feel like they have a friend in the gospel and the strength to live gospel standards. And how do you feel that our understanding of the gathering can help prepare the way for the second coming? Our understanding of the gathering will help keep us mindful to watch for opportunities when we can help another or share the gospel with somebody. Whereas if we're not consciously being aware of the gathering, we can just go throughout life without making any efforts. I think sometimes we think of sharing the gospel as the only way that we can gather Israel. But if you think about it, President Nelson has said that as we live the gospel, we're gathering Israel. As we care for those in need, we're gathering Israel. As we share the gospel, and as we unite families for eternity in temples, we're gathering Israel. So remember those key words. Those are the words that are in the very first page of the church handbook. Live, care, invite, unite. And those are the ways that we can engage ourselves in the gathering. I remember as a missionary, serving in Rome, Italy, I was terrified to go up and speak to somebody else. Well, we all fear rejection. We all fear, um, you know, oh, he's not going to want it, or I'm pushing my religion on someone else, and we, and we, try, we hold back. Or maybe even, oh, that type of person won't want to hear what I have to say. So, Melissa, what can you add and teach us about this idea of sparing not when we talk about the gathering? Well, I was just looking at that, and I was thinking... Um, sometimes we want to spare ourselves discomfort. And what I mean is um, it's really easy to like do certain things like you bring someone a casserole or you help them move, you schlep all their random stuff in boxes. But that's easy to do. So we all know how to like exert that kind of effort. I think Latter-day Saints are really good at working together. One thing where I think we could work a little harder, and, and myself included, and, and not spare ourselves is in enlarging. So to enlarge the place of the tent, to stretch forth the curtains, it says, don't, don't spare not, don't, um, you know, don't spare this, this extra work that it takes to make the tent bigger. If you think about like enlarging a tent, um, anyone who works with fabric knows you gotta like, if, if you're gonna take something that already exists, then, it, then you have to put stuff on it. That's a big pain. You got to sew stuff onto it. You've got to add things. Um, it's like not super easy to make something bigger that wasn't already that big. And so what I'm saying is sometimes when, uh, as a church grows and becomes a global church, we find that there are these, these differences. For example, the church used to mostly be in Utah and the publications of the church and the histories of the church, uh, these things re represented a very kind of Utah-centric view. And now the church is more worldwide and we have different cultures different political affiliations, different assumptions about what, um, what kinds of things does an honest person do and what kind of things does a dishonest person do. Those are all now part 
of the church. And it's mm-hmm. super hard to kind of um, make space for these um, new cultures and also new experiences that people have. I think sometimes we feel uncomfortable when there's someone who's not like us at church. And we, we kind of want to just, the, the easiest thing to do is to ignore them or to dismiss them and not try to kind of include them in our view of what it means to be a Latter-day Saint. Um, so sometimes maybe we should not spare ourselves a little bit um, that discomfort. It's not going to kill us. Think thoughts. about if a Muslim friend gave you a prayer rug. Uh, you wouldn't say, quit shoving your religion down my throat. No. You would say, thank you for giving me something so personal mm-hmm. and special to you. And same with a Jewish friend who would give you a yarmulke. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't say, quit trying to convert me. You would say, thank you for giving me something meaningful. And I think that people have the same response when we give a copy of the Book of Mormon. They say, thank you for giving me something that's so personal to you. And yet as members of the church, we get scared. And we say, oh, I don't want to shove my religion down his throat. I don't want to cram my beliefs down his throat. And so we pull back. And I think this scripture is telling us, don't hold back. Be willing to give and trust that other people will receive that gift as you give it sincerely. They'll receive it as something that's very personal to you. And they will accept that as something that's very meaningful to you. I'm curious if there's somebody in the audience today who has been affected by the efforts of someone who spared not. Mm, That's a good question. So how have you been affected by somebody who spared not? Caitlin. A little while ago, we moved out of Utah and I was at recess and sitting alone because I have not met anyone yet. And two girls walked up to me and asked if they if I wanted to join them in a game that they were playing. And I said yes, and now we are really good friends and we have stayed in contact when we moved back here. What were your initial thoughts when those two girls came up to you and invited you to join them? I was a little hesitant because I didn't know them, but I thought that it would be fun to try something new with them. Now, when is a time that you spared not? Last year, I invited one of my friends that do not go to the church to girls camp. Even though she was not able to go, I felt a lot better after that experience. Brother Wilcox, you mentioned earlier about the fear that we sometimes have, you know, to reach out. Um, What kind of advice can you give to those who are a little hesitant or scared? Well, we get afraid because we think they might reject me. But if you remember that you're standing with Jesus Christ, And as you reach out and try to include others, you're standing with the Savior. So you're not standing there alone. I think it's also important to remember that as you're trying to reach out, you think, oh, they don't want what I have to offer. They don't want it. Well, we can't make that assumption because we know that everyone needs it. And so they can make the choice but they can't make the choice unless we're willing to make the offer. And so all we need to do is just come that far. And then if they choose to go the rest of the way, great. And if they don't, then at least we have done what we should do. Sometimes when I'm sitting in a plane and next to somebody, I'll start a little conversation. And sometimes I'll say, where are you from? 
and they'll say, oh, I'm from Kentucky or I'm from Texas. And I say, oh, I have a friend who served a mission there. And they go, mission? And I say, yeah, a mission from my church, the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes they'll say, oh, that's nice. And that's the end of it. <laughs> but other times they say, oh, I know somebody who's a member of that church and it starts a conversation. So if they don't want to go there, great. But I'm not going to not offer the opportunity. Uh, and I think that's where we've got to be brave and realize that even though this may not be something that people initially want, it's something that they need. I love what you said about how the Savior's with us, because the Savior's also with us, not only in, in um, representing His atonement and His message around the world, the people who haven't heard the message yet, but the Savior's also with us when we represent Him um, in reaching out to people who are marginalized. Jesus left 99 people and went out into the mountains to find one person and hung out with people who were pariahs in their age, who are not only considered sinners, but who were just um, considered disgusting, who were just considered horrible people by most people. Um, and that's where Jesus was, being friends with them and spending time with them. So I think that um, this, this like notion of, of enlarging our tent is so fruitful as a metaphor mm -hmm. as well, because um, you know, we may not, we may, like none of us here is connected to kind of the central hierarchy of the church. We're more kind of stakes in the ground kind of people. Right, we're not in the middle, we're kind of at the end, but each one of us has that opportunity to pick the stake up and to move it out so that it encompasses more. Um, we can do that on a person by person basis with just people in our wards or um, with people in our lives. They don't have to be Latter-day Saints, um, but we can be that person who makes our tent bigger so that it encompasses all kinds of people, uh, people who are different from us, depending on wherever we are. And, and we want to let them know that through our actions. Through our actions. Has anyone here felt that you were gathered into somebody's tent? And what was that like? Angel. When I was six, I was in a foster home and I was taken up by a family from Utah. Um, and that changed my life in more than one way because this family was LDS um, and I came from a background with possibly no hope. Um, and I was introduced to this. Um, same with my brother, my biological brother, we were both taken to the same family. And since then, my brother served a mission and we have opportunity to join the church and to raise our kids into the church. And with no pressure, by the way, my adoptive family never pressured me or my brother to make these choices. We did it willingly and the best decision that I've ever made. And I wouldn't have had that opportunity without them being inspired to see kids and they've accepted us and we feel the love from everybody around us and especially the church. It's definitely changed my life. Can you tell us how your relationship with Jesus Christ has changed since you were brought in by this family? I didn't really know who Jesus was, um, but there was an experience that I had in a foster home with my brother. Um, we said a prayer because we, we were in a home that wasn't really good. And uh, my brother said, we should pray. And I didn't know who God was. And he said a prayer. And, and like a month later, that's when, that's when uh, my parents, my parents found us. And ever since then I knew God was real. And I knew that God was 
looking out for me and my brother because from where we came from to where we are now, it's, I can't imagine how my life would have been. And I'm so grateful because I know that there is a Heavenly Father who cares about each and every one of us. He sees our struggles. We, we had no say in what our life was like from that point. We had no options. We just had to go with it. But he put his hand into our lives and he brought us out. And Thank you so much. That was a wonderful example of what we're trying to do here. Thank you for all of your thoughts and just for the spirit that you have invited as we've talked about the second topic, gathering, enlarging the place of our tents. I really enjoyed being on Come Follow Up because it's been a great inspiration for me hearing other people's stories and the things that they've gone through and it's touched my spirit and it makes me want to become a better person and um, further learn more about the scriptures and what Isaiah has to offer. I really felt the spirit when one of the audience members shared about their adoption and it made me think of how his adoptive parents followed a prompting. They acted on it when it came into their hearts and by doing that they were the hands of Heavenly Father to absolutely change the lives of these children and the generations to come from them. It really touched me and inspired me to focus on my unique relationship with Jesus Christ and to consistently remember that Christ has felt everything that I felt, all my sins, all my sorrows, and that through Him I can have hope and joy in the future. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. Okay, so as we get into Isaiah, and this is something we've talked about before, with Isaiah, it can be very confusing and a little scary. Yeah, a lot times. of people skip it. Right, a lot of people do skip it. <laughs> Have there been those moments where it's like, aha, I get it? Well, for me, it was just learning the kind of basic historical context for the part of Isaiah that we're talking about. It's speaking to um, the children of Israel who are living in exile and this, these kind of promises of redemption. Um, overall, so I can, it, it makes more sense to me if I see it as a bunch of riffs on this theme of redemption. See, I think that's interesting that you connected to Isaiah through the, the lens of history, and, and I connected to Isaiah as a writer, because suddenly it was the symbolism, it was the poetry that grabbed me. And when I started, instead of trying to understand all the history, when I started just looking at it as poetry and appreciating that Eastern writing tradition. See, in the West, we're very used to description and we want it all, we want prose. But when I started looking at it as poetry, then the images, the symbolism, all of that started speaking to my heart. And that's when Isaiah came alive for me. How do you create that, that excitement with somebody who may not be a historian or may not be into the poetic side of it, how do we try to help members of the church get, or in just in general, people to get excited about Isaiah's words? I think the, the, the reason Isaiah is quoted so much, he's the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. He's the most quoted prophet in the Old Testament. He's quoted in the Book of Mormon, another testament. I mean, 
the reason that we see him quoted so often is because his writing is timeless. And if we start recognizing that he's not just talking about a people, but he's talking to a person, it can be both. Okay. Is he speaking to Israel as a people? Yes. Is he speaking to Israel of his day? Yes. Is he speaking to us today? Yes. He's, the answer for Isaiah is yes. That's always the answer. Because of this timeless quality, then suddenly we can find meaning for ourselves, even in words that were written so many centuries ago. And we can start recognizing that what he said then is as current in our world as a conference talk. Um, this is not my own thought. I'm kind of paraphrasing from what uh, Book of Mormon scholars like Terrell Givens and Joseph Spencer have said. But they point out that um, why does Nephi, for example, obsess over Isaiah so much? Why is Nephi always kind of pushing Isaiah at the reader? And um, from what I understand of their scholarship, they think that it's because, you know, Nephi sees in Isaiah a sort of pattern for what happens to a remnant of Israel. You know, just as the people living in Babylon are a remnant after, you know, the horrific destruction of their people and, and being kind of carried off, um, Nephi and his family saw themselves as a remnant of Israel that had to kind of start again in the wilderness and was mm -hmm. hoping for this kind of restoration that would come to them, hoping for this covenant that would continue with them. And then these scholars talk about how this is one way in which the Book of Mormon, by kind of um, providing this new lens on the writings of Isaiah, which describe this covenant and the Lord's relationship with the covenant people, that applies to all of us too. We are also kind of enfolded into that covenant. So for example, um, you know, for a long time, you know, there's this like distinction, distinction between the so-called Old Testament and the New Testament. And that, that distinction is, is a bit pejorative with, with regard to the Hebrew Bible, right? Because okay. it's like, that's like the old stuff. And like, now we've got the new stuff that like right. replaces it. But what, um, what the Book of Mormon does by kind of emphasizing Isaiah and this kind of covenant relationship is it, it collapses those two covenants, those two worlds of the covenant into the same world. Right, we are. Um, we believe that we are part of um, God's gathering of God's people, um, which is what was going on in the Old Testament. What Isaiah is talking about um, in history and also today. And then um, we also believe that Christ is a part of that covenant. So, um, so what the Old, uh, the Book of Mormon does when it brings us these Isaiah chapters, and what what Jesus does, you know, when Jesus visits the Nephites and the Lamanites and all of the peoples who are assembled there at the temple, and you know, has Isaiah read, um, that's all kind of collapsing these these different paradigms together into one, okay. which is kind of cool. So, are there other writers or authors or scholars that we can look to stylistically and say this is a type of Isaiah? Kind of that timeless quality, right? One that comes to my mind is Elder Maxwell. Um, you know, he writes in such a beautiful way that even though he lived many years ago and taught many years ago, the words apply to us right now. Um, listen to this uh, teaching from Elder Maxwell. Some want to be free to choose, but to have God ever poised to rescue them. They want to call on God in their extremities, but don't want him to interfere with their sensualities. They demand an undemanding God. Others 
want moral agency for humanity, but without the possibility of human misery. They desire permissiveness without the consequences of permissiveness. Mm. Now, not only does that have this poetic quality like Isaiah, but timeless? Timeless. Oh my gosh, this could have been written yesterday right. about the people that are posting on social media yeah. right now. Wow. For me, I think about Chieko Okazaki. Oh, who I was love a, Sister Okazaki. Who was Loved a counselor her. in the General Relief Society presidency. And, um, and she, was, she was a member of the Relief Society presidency when I was kind of coming of age. So I had this like special love for her. Um, but what I, what I love is how she often tells stories that are rooted in her own experience, rooted in the past in a kind of specific story. But Much they have, like Isaiah general applicability Yeah, much for like everyone. Isaiah. So she tells a story about how when she was going to school at the University of Hawaii, her mother, her father, and her brothers worked really hard to make these zori um, out, of, um, out of these leaves. Okay, what's, that, what's that zori? Zori are Japanese sandals. Oh, okay. Flip-flops, they're flip-flops. Flip -flops. Okay. Okay, but so she, um, they would work really hard and they would earn 50 cents okay. for every pair. So they had to make hundreds of these constantly so that she could attend the University of Hawaii. And, and she remembers that, that sacrifice. And she says, many of us know that someone has made zori for us at 50 cents a pair. We attend schools we did not build. We read books we did not print. We wear clothes that someone else sewed for us. We eat food that someone grew for us. Many times we spend money that we did not earn personally. We learn the gospel from teachers who have prepared themselves for our sake. It is a sign of spiritual maturity, I think, to acknowledge that our acceptance of these gifts brings an obligation upon us. There are people to whom we should express appreciation for sacrifices. There are reverent ways in which we should use natural resources, consider the contributions of others, honor those who have gone before. Wow. And when you think about the, the year she wrote that was long ago, but... Man, she could be talking to us right now. And the theme that she's even talking about fits in with what we were talking about earlier, this idea of sparing not and really being mindful and taking in um, everybody as we try to gather. Is there anything that we wanted to, to go back to or include in, in, in any of the topics that we've already discussed? Well, as we talked about gathering, I think it's in, let's go back to Isaiah 54, he talks about stones with fair colors, foundations of sapphires. Then he talks about agates and carbuncles and pleasant stones. These are jewels. And I think this is telling us how he feels about those that are willing to do this work of gathering. We have been given great responsibilities, but we've also been given great blessings to help us with these responsibilities. We have a birthright. And as we live up to that birthright, and as we do the work that he has chosen us to do, then we become these jewels, these pleasant, precious stones that are, in his eyes, so important. So, Melissa, you had, um, you know, we talked a little bit about this idea of sparing not uh, that we get from chapter 54, uh, verse 2. Uh, do you have any other thoughts as far as what we can do as, um, as Christians, more specifically as Latter-day Saints, since we are in this setting, to, to really help others who may feel a little left out of our tent? Well, I think one thing that we can do is listen to people. 
and to ask to learn about people's experiences. Oh, and then the, the third thing is, once we've learned about their experiences, change something about how we do the Latter-day Saint thing. Okay. I remember uh, I listened to a Latter-day Saint woman who's black um, share her experience about how it was impossible for her growing up in Utah to go do temple baptisms in the morning. This is like a standard thing the ward would do. They would go in the morning um, before school, they would do baptisms, and they'd run off to school. But she couldn't do that because her hair would get wet, and then she would have to do her hair. Okay. And it took a really long time. But nobody, nobody thought about it. Mm-mm. Right. And so she, wow. she could never go. So, so this is just an example. So once I, I had just never thought about it before. Like, and it wouldn't have crossed my mind. Right. I mean, even as you said it, I was like, man, I never would have thought about that. So now, if I'm in a, in a situation where we're planning an activity, I, I will kind of think a little harder about, like, mm-hmm. can everyone that we're planning this activity for participate? What are the things? And, and the way to know, of course, is to have those people in the room. Right. Right? So, um, so I think this is helpful for a couple of things. For example, President Nelson has taught us that, like, good inspiration is based on good information. And you can't get good information if you, unless you've got a lot of people in the room who can give that information. Otherwise, you're just kind of making stuff up based on what, what you think is the way things are. And so when I say um, we need to like do the Latter-day Saint thing in a different way, when we have more people in our circle of the people we consult, um, and, and not only like, let me think, maybe I will like deign to consult this person. Aren't they so lucky that I brought them in? But when we think, oh my gosh, I'm going to be doing really crappy work. I'm going to have crappy inspiration unless I've got these people who are really different from me in the room and, and like make that a, a, a thing, a standard that we hold ourselves to, then um, only then can we have good inspiration uh, to make decisions for what we're doing at church, um, to make, to serve each other. I have a dear friend named Vance Taylor who's in a wheelchair. And when he was here at BYU as a student, his ward said, we're going to do a hike to the Y. And once again, he thought, okay, I'm left out. And instead, some young men came to his room and said, you're not getting out of this hike. And they carried him. They carried him up to the Y because they didn't want him to be excluded. And I'm just so grateful for those that do take that moment to look around and say, how can we understand? How can we include? How can we make sure that others are welcome? Sister Okazaki, Vance Taylor, we want to make sure that everybody has a place. And then in the moment when we see how valuable those things are, to then change our structures so that going forward, yeah. it's not like, will Melissa remember in the moment um, this thing that's very important, but to kind of change the structures yeah. going forward. Yeah, you know, in addition to, you know, some of the, the people that we tend to leave out of our tent, I think sometimes it, we have to be careful about those that may not have the appearance of, you know, they may look the part, but on the inside, they may feel lost, you know, based off of just you know, some of the choices they've made in their life and how they're feeling at that time. So how do we include just in our speech and our, our manner of treating everybody when we may not even know it, those that feel lost, how do we include them into our tent? We often talk about Israel being lost and needing to be gathered. And we have to remember they're not lost because they don't know where they are. They're lost because they don't know who they are. 
And they've forgotten. They've forgotten who they are. And so I think as we look at each other, we need to remember that sometimes people are just forgetting who they are, but we can't forget it. We have to be able to see those people just as God sees them and look at each other as God looks at us. And as we're able to do that, then instead of, of you know, saying, oh, this person is lost, and then that person feeling judged, we can say, this person is a valued son or daughter of God and a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he may have forgotten for a moment, but I can be there and treat him the way I know he is. That makes me think about chapter 57. There's this kind of warning about idolatry, right? Like you're supposed to be, um, have this covenant with God, but then you've, you've gone off after this other person. Mm -hmm. And how horrible is that? Don't do it. Um, and that just makes me think so often, you know, we lose our humility and sometimes we go into the places where we're supposed to be worshiping God, but actually we've got like our own kind of vision of like what's right and like what's perfect and our gospel knowledge and all of our learning and our uh, great works and high character. So we sit there saying character. that person shouldn't be saying that in a testimony and that person shouldn't be doing this. And yeah, and we put ourselves in, in the position of God, which, yeah. is, which is judging other people or um, assessing their worthiness. When as King Benjamin right. says, we're all kind of wretched, we're all beggars. And, and so when someone, for example, has, um, feels like they don't belong because um, that they're not sure about some things, they have some really deep questions about the church that haven't been resolved, um, you know, I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, there are some things that we'll never know. There's some sins that we'll never overcome, and we're basically all just the same. You know, hopefully we'll, we'll be more cautious and careful as we, as we say certain things and we, you know, make some certain judgments against people. So thank you for sharing that. I have a friend who wasn't able to go into the temple mm. with her daughter when she was endowed. And uh, the security guard at the temple noticed that she was having to say goodbye to her daughter and going into the temple. And he went over afterwards and put his arm around her and said, I know what you're going through and it's gonna be okay. And her bishop gave her a blessing and said, you will feel close to the Lord. Even though you can't go into the temple right now, you will feel close to the Lord, just as your daughter feels close to him in the temple. I think that it just really shows that everybody, this idea keeps coming back, spare not. Like I want everybody, I want everybody to be a part of this and to be protected into this tent. It makes me think about the amazing exchanges we had here today. And these um, verses in chapter 54, which have always troubled me a little bit, um, says, For but a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord my Redeemer. So the question that always comes to mind is, but like God always loves us, right? Mm. Um, God is always supporting us, right? Um, and, and here I don't think, God will never forsake us, right? Um, and, and yet I think you know, we, we can't see the mind of God. And, and there are times I think when we can feel forsaken if only for a small moment. That's an okay feeling to have. That's a real feeling to have 
we can, we, people really feel forsaken. But I think there's some comfort built into that same chapter. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals mm. on the fire and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waster to destroy. And here God's not saying, I'm going to waste you. But I think God is saying, I, you know, this is part of the plan. The plan is you're going to be tested. You're going to be refined in the fires. Um, there's going to be really hard stuff that happens that kind of blows through and knocks over your house or wrecks your body or, you know, does the kinds of things that, that happen in a life with um, natural laws and agency, right? Um, but those were created. And, and then I think it can give us a little comfort. We also signed up for this as well. Um, this is part of God's creation. Um, our heavenly parents didn't want to put us into a, like a monkey suit, you know, like where we couldn't move or, or a padded cell where we couldn't like hurt ourselves. Um, we were put into this great playground, which is also really quite dangerous. And, um, and we are, we're going to get hurt, but that's part of our progression and learning to become like them. Beautiful. Brother Wilcox, will you give us some, some final thoughts on what we've been talking about today? I think... If we can remember that prophets like Isaiah are not just giving a talk, in many cases they're being very vulnerable and sharing some of their own lives. One of the Isaiah verses talks about when he was called as a prophet, and he talks about his sons who have very special names because it has to do with the scattering and the gathering of Israel. I mean, he's sharing his personal life. And so when we kind of say, oh, I'm skipping Isaiah, I'm not even gonna try with Isaiah. I think we're kind of taking the words of someone who's opening his heart and we're just dismissing them. Wow. And think about how beautiful it was to hear these young people today open their hearts. And I think we have to honor that. We honored it as we listened to them today. And I think we have to honor that as we read it in scripture as well. Thank both of you so much. This has been such a joy. And thank you all for joining us at home. We're so grateful to have you with us as we've talked about these amazing topics. And we wanna invite and encourage you to continue to follow through on any prompting you may have felt while with us today. Thanks again, and please join us next week for another episode of Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.